0: Welcome, everybody, to the Creative Community Podcast, where we discuss the intersection between the arts and Israel. I am Ari Engel, the director of Creative Community for Peace. And today's guest is a Grammy award-winning producer, an entrepreneur, an author, a tech innovator, the former president of Columbia Records, the founder of S-Curve Records, who has signed and produced hits for such artists as Josh Stone, Hanson, Andy Grammer, the Jonas Brothers, in addition to having a passion and love for Israel and the music community there.
1: We are excited to welcome Steve Greenberg to the creative community today. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing as well as can be expected under these circumstances. Uh, We're at home and it actually is a weird day where I am. It was snowing most of the day. And And you're in New York, right? We're in um, upstate New York at the moment. And uh, yeah, we had a bunch of snow for a few hours this morning, but now it's just horrible cold rain. And I don't want to talk too much about Corona, but since we'd be
0: remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about it, especially the impact on the entertainment community. So, for instance, I saw Haim today postpone their album. Other people like The
1: Weeknd have put out their album. What are you guys doing with albums right now? You know, I think that uh, people, especially when they have so much time on their hands, need uh, art and music uh, to inspire them, uh, or at the very least distract them. So I think we're still putting out music. Uh, We are putting out some remixes from Netta, who is on our label, um, you know, who of course won the Eurovision a couple of years ago, and she's been putting out uh, music with us for the last couple of years. And uh, we have new music coming from her next month. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're just continuing on as well as we can. Obviously, it's very hard to produce new music because it's hard to get people together in a studio, so people who have home studios and can do it in a self-contained fashion have a little bit of an advantage at the moment. It's also really hard to do videos. Again, again, only the kind of videos you can do at home by yourself really are uh, plausible at the moment. But we're trying our best, you know. And uh, it's had a big impact on the touring schedule of everybody. I mean, all the tours have been canceled, and of course, right. a lot of times you build an album release around a tour, so a lot of the postponed albums might be. A result of postponed tours.
0: Yeah because these days the album almost helps sell the tour for the artist to get out yeah. there and without yeah. the tour it makes it a little more difficult. Even licensing to TV and film, I mean I'm sure shows that are scheduled right now are still going full speed ahead but that can have an impact I'm assuming as well if there's no shows to be putting music to or yeah and, and you know syncs are obviously big. So. To, just to get also, we have a lot of young people that listen to this. And just to get a little bit of background on where your start in the entertainment community. Um, I saw you went to Stanford. I actually went to Berkeley. So we're, we're a bit of rivals there. And then you went to, um, what was it, American University? Well, I it's went to
1: American University. University first as an undergrad. Oh, I went got to American you. University in Washington, D.C. first. And then I went to grad school at Stanford. And in between those two stops, I actually lived in Israel for a couple of years.
0: Oh, Wow. And, and how did that translate to music? How did you go from Stanford
1: doing international relations into the music industry? Oh, that's, a, that's a long story. Um, you know, for starters, I was always involved in music on my college radio station when I was at American University. And then when I moved to Israel, I uh, worked as a reporter for the news in English on um, Reshet Aleph, which was one of the channels that uh, Israel Broadcasting had back then. And every day they had the news in English a couple times a day. And I did the news in English for a couple of years. Uh, but also I moonlit back then. My, uh, my night job was DJing in all kinds of clubs around Tel Aviv. So back in the early 80s, I DJed in uh, the Coliseum and in the Penguin Club and Colonel.
0: Legendary Israel clubs.
1: Legendary clubs. And actually, I actually forgot one stop on the way, which was that I was fortunate enough to get to spend uh, some time as a disc jockey on the Voice of Peace, which was a radio station that broadcasts from a ship in the Mediterranean to Israel and all of its neighboring countries. Um, and it was what an amazing- was the
0: story behind that? What, what was the story? It was like a coexistence radio station that was docked off the coast of Israel. Yeah.
1: In 1973, a very idealistic Israeli named A.B. Natan decided that, uh, the idea of kind of peace through communication, you know, was, was, a viable concept. And he, uh, Started this radio station on a ship. The ship was actually um, purchased with funds donated by John Lennon, oh, and wow. the ship uh, was about 12 miles off the coast of Israel in international waters, and you could re- you could receive it in Israel and Lebanon and parts of Egypt and Jordan. And uh, the idea was that you know everyone's listening to the same music and enjoying the same radio show, and it's going to be a lot harder to sort of feel like we're all strangers at that point. And the commercials on the Voice of Peace, by and large, were for peace. You know, instead of being for Coca-Cola, there was a commercial for peace, you know. So it was, it was pretty great. And we just basically just played the hits and, or the oldies. And uh, it, was, you know, it, was a, it was a really interesting time. It was a very basic place, meaning it was very no frills with quite, quite awful food. And the whole place smelled like gasoline. But it was an amazing experience.
0: Did you actually go to the ship to, to DJ? Or you live ship. on the
1: ship. You have to live you on don't the go ship. Go to the ship. You'd be, once you get there, there's no way off. I mean, I went there and I didn't come off for months. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, you only left. You'd leave if you left. It was a big deal. You know, it took a long time to get out to the ship.
0: What? Um, and what happened to that? How long did that last for?
1: The ship lasted from 1973 till I believe 1995, and then in the wake of the uh, Oslo agreements. A.B. Natan, who was a tremendous idealist and a tremendous optimist, he, um, he sank the ship because um, he said, well, my work is done. We've achieved peace. And so he sank the peace ship. And so They need, to, they need to bring back, back the bottom peace bottom ship. Of the Mediterranean. <laughs> Sorry? They need to bring back the peace ship. Someone my needs absolutely. to go in there and resurrect it. And, but it was, it was, it was pretty incredible, the voice of peace. Uh, everyone back in those days in Israel knew, knew the station and listened to the station. And uh, it was really the first sort of very modern pop radio station in Israel, even before Reshek Kimmel.
0: Oh, wow. And so, okay, so you went from Israel doing the DJ thing. By the way, I DJed at a club named Allen B 58, which when I lived in Israel for a year also was like legendary club back in the day. And yeah, you know, they're all gone now. All these, I don't think the Coliseum's there either, right?
1: I mean, the building is there, but there's something else in there. I think, um, yeah. but you know, but yeah, I mean, yeah, this is a long time ago. We're talking about the '80s now, so it's pretty much a different era.
0: I know what. So okay, so you go from that, you come back to America, you're you're a Stanford grad, and yeah. you say, "I'm getting into the music industry."
1: You know, I no, I didn't I actually. I took I took another year after Stanford. I I studied at Penn for a year um, after my, I got my MA at Stanford, and then I took a year off, and it was really to pay some some debts and stuff and i wanted to just take one year and take a break and then i was going to go back and finish my phd and i got a job in the music business uh, because i knew a lot about music and wound up staying for 33 years
0: wow and, and i know you're probably sick of the story but i think it's a story that needs to be told steve is the, the writer and producer of Who Let Them Dogs Out. First of all, h- how did that come about? And, and I know you did even the, the barking noises, right? The woof-woofs, so are all you. Yeah.
1: So, so just to set the record straight, I'm not the writer. The song not was the written writer. by a man named Anselm Douglas from Trinidad. Okay. And I heard a version of the song um, years before I did it. And I always had this idea that if it was done in the right style, it could be a hit around the world. And so I eventually kind of figured out in my head how I wanted to do it. And I produced it along with another great producer uh, named Michael Mangini, and we did it together in his apartment. And uh, the Baja men who recorded the song were great singers, but they weren't very good barkers. And I knew that the barking had to just be great because it was such a crucial part of the song. So where I'm in the studio and I'm saying to them, no, don't you, you're not doing it right. Do it like this, you know? And I show them how I want them to bark. And they said, okay, Mr. Smart Alec, if you think you're such a great barker, why don't you just do it yourself? So I did. And so that's me barking on the Bahamans who let the dogs out, which was, you know, a great, a great uh, story to tell my kids when they were growing up because their, their friends all thought that was very cool when they were little.
0: I mean, it's an iconic song. It was just like everywhere. That went number one, I'm assuming, right?
1: It went number one in a lot of countries, including Israel, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously just a very well-remembered story, song. I'll tell you actually an interesting story uh about 7 years ago i worked on a record in uh, jerusalem with david broza and it was a record called east jerusalem west jerusalem and we did it in a palestinian owned studio in east jerusalem with uh a band that was like half israeli musicians and half palestinian musicians and as part of the record we used uh, the kids from the Jerusalem Youth Choir, which uh, is a choir that's basically about half of them are Jewish kids from West Jerusalem and half of them are Muslim kids from East Jerusalem. And uh, when I got introduced to the kids, uh, somebody introduced me to them and saying, Well, you know, he did a record, uh, you know, called Who Let the Dogs Out. And immediately, just spontaneously, all the kids started chanting, you know, Who Let the Dogs Out and barking. That's amazing. And what was amazing about it for me those kids hadn't even been born when the song came out. So I love the fact that they learned it like sort of years after the fact and that the song has really lived on. And it wasn't just a song that was known in its day, but it's actually known by people who were born after it was released. And in the
0: Middle East, young kids from the Palestinian areas and from the Jewish, it's incredible. It shows you the reach of music. Actually talking about, why don't we talk about that a little bit? So how did you initially meet David Broza?
1: Ooh, You know, years ago, there was somebody who was trying to put together a project of bringing um, a delegation of American songwriters to write with a delegation of Israeli songwriters and Arab songwriters in Israel. Um, And it was a very complicated project because it would have required people coming from various Arab countries. And it was uh, you know, kind of logistically very challenging. And it actually never came off, the project never happened. Um, But I met David through that project and uh, we stayed friends. And then uh, a few years later, uh, he started putting out music on my label, which was great. And then sort of the high point of all that was really when we got to do the East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem album together. Uh, along with Steve Earle, who's this incredible musician and producer who um, was a major, major, major factor in the, in the record. Uh, but it was amazing to spend uh, eight days and eight nights in this uh, Palestinian studio in Shukjara in Jerusalem. It was a b- very incredible experience. And David actually is uh, finishing up a new album for us right now. And uh, it's actually a pretty exciting album because it's the first time David will ever uh, release a instrumental album the album is all just guitar music spanish is an
0: amazing guitar player
1: right well I, I said to him i said you know you're one of the best spanish guitar players in the world why don't you just do an instrumental album someday and he said okay i will and so he did it and he recorded it in spain and it's it's a wonderful record it'll come out this summer
0: amazing and for the east the east jerusalem west jerusalem is that so he came to you with that concept or what was his idea Yeah. He had, initially?
1: He, he had a concept that he was going to make this record um, in uh, East Jerusalem under the circumstances that I described, and he kind of had this attitude like maybe no one will show up, like maybe the musicians won't show up, but it doesn't matter, I'll show up and I'll just be there. And if nobody else shows up, I'll do it myself. So he had this kind of like determination and vision, I'm going to do this thing, no one's going to stop me from doing this thing. And he went and did it and all these musicians showed up, uh, both Palestinian and Israeli musicians. And it was, it was incredible. Uh, and we got to spend a lot of time with each other. You know, uh, We had rappers from the Shuafat refugee camp on the record, which was kind of amazing. And David actually visited uh, the Shuafat refugee camp during the course of making the record and performed there for kids. Uh, so it, it was really an incredible journey. I will say that if you're interested in the project, there's a wonderful documentary on Netflix um, called East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, that uh, shows the whole process of how we made the record. It's a really good documentary.
0: Uh, yeah, it's an amazing documentary. And did, they, did the Palestinian artists get any pushback from appearing on, either on the record or the documentary at all? And
1: I think after everything was released, a couple of guys got a little, got hassled a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I know of at least one person involved in the record who feels like it took a toll on his professional life. His professional opportunities having participated in that record and um i feel bad about that that he did something out of idealism and friendship and it actually came back to hurt him and his ability to earn a living Uh,
0: it's tough because there's so much pressure through their anti-normalization to not do anything with israelis and artists want to collaborate like it doesn't matter where you're from where you are in the world you know artists want to be artists and creating music is something so Know, magical and pure that everybody in the world no matter your background has in common so
1: yeah well one of the interesting, one of the interesting things about david Broza is he doesn't believe in boycotts mm-hmm. um, so he doesn't he, like his attitude is he'll he'll play in front of anybody yeah. as long as he can play whatever he wants you know so he'll you know he'll even though he's very much you know a, um on the left politically you know he'll play in in settlements But he says i'm gonna go there and i'm gonna play whatever i want to play and i'm going to play you know which is a song about making peace with your neighbors and territorial compromise and things like that so i'm gonna i'm gonna do that as as long as you're okay with me playing whatever i want i'll play wherever you want me to play because i want to bring my message to anybody who i can bring it to yeah and there's a and i can't can't bring my message to people who who i'm boycotting
0: exactly but there's people like mira wad that are on that album that i mean she's amazing a palestinian artist who also believes in that
1: Mirawad's is a really great person who's also become a friend of mine and uh, you know she she has a difficult time because it's you know she sort of is straddling two communities and it's very hard to to do that
0: yeah and how did you decide was it david broza that was the first i want to start working with israeli artists like what made you decide oh, i want to no. go I, find talent there
1: so when i lived in israel i really loved israeli music and i always kind of stayed in touch with it and uh and just you know, kind of messed around with it a little bit. Um, way back in the early '90s, actually, when I was at Atlantic Records, I once did a remix of an early David Deor record called Yad Anuga, uh, and we actually did remixes, and we had a big dance hit with that in England, I remember, uh, which was pretty cool. So that was probably the first Israeli record that I ever worked with. Um, then you have to fast forward a lot of years. Um, In 2007, I produced two songs on a Shiri Maimon album, uh, which was a really wonderful experience because she's an incredible artist and a really nice person.
0: And does she reach out to you or how does that come about?
1: No, the head of her record label, Ronnie Brown, who who owns the Helicon label, reached out to me about it. I I know Ronnie pretty well. I've known a lot of the record executives over the years.
0: He's like the legendary Israeli record label head, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, Ron, Ronnie's one of the legendary Israeli record heads. And then there were, there were guys who, like, ran Head C and the guys who ran CBS back in the day when there was CBS. I knew a lot of those guys. So um, but I'll tell you a funny story. You know, back in, uh, when, I, when I lived in Israel in 1983, I once applied for a job at uh, CBS Records in Israel. When I didn't get the job, I got turned down for the job. And, of course, what's funny about that to me is that many years later, I became the president of Columbia Records, which is CBS Records um and uh so i w- i couldn't get a job at israelis uh the israeli branch of that company but i wound up becoming the president of the american branch
0: that's funny that's funny and
1: so now you who besides neta you have who else do you have awa i have awa so, we have Netta. we have david Brozen, we have awa awa are fantastic i heard uh their very first single um habib galbi um on the radio uh my friend, Tony Fine, who's another legendary Israeli DJ from the radio, used to send me the uh, Israeli top 20 every week. This is sort of before all this stuff was easily available on, online. And he would just send me this, uh, this scan of the Israeli top 20 chart. And down at the bottom, at like number 19 for one week, there was a song that was called Habib Galbi, and the name of the group was Awa. And I thought, well, that was very kind of unusual. So I was curious just by the title. What is that, you know? So I looked it up and I found it, and um, I loved the song so much. And so we signed Awa, and we've already put out two albums by Awa. And in fact, we even did a remix of Habib Galbi a couple of years ago with Pitbull guesting on it. And you can hear that on, uh, you know, Spotify or wherever you hear your music. Uh, so I love, and I love the Awa girls. One of them had a baby earlier this year, so they're a little bit less active as live performers. But uh, you know, they performed all over the world, and they play in big festivals in Europe, and they're just great. And it's three,
0: three Yemenite sisters?
1: The right? three Yemenite sisters and they kind of combine Yemenite folk melodies, Yemenite sensibilities with electronic beats. In some ways, it's a modern equivalent of what Ofer Chaza was doing in the 80s yeah. when she did Ibn and, and the song Galbi. Um, in fact, I actually, um, I knew Ofer Chaza back in those days when she had those hits. In America, those records came out on Warner records and I worked for Warner Records in those days. And so when they used to come around the office, I used to spend time with them because I, you know, had lived in Israel and I knew Hebrew and uh, she was a lovely person.
0: Wow. So and so and how do you break a, a band like Awa that sings? I mean, most of their music is in Hebrew or in English? It's all in Yemenite. All in Yemenite. So how do you bring them to the American market? I guess the world markets easier, the world music. It,
1: yeah, it. I mean, basically, I think you, you kind of make it into the world music market. Yeah. And there are some ways to get some attention. You know, we did uh, uh, NPR Tiny Desk Concerts and a couple of other NPR opportunities came our way and some KCRW opportunities, which is a big uh, non-commercial station in Los Angeles. We did a live session for them. So, you know, I think we made it to a lot of the places that are open to unusual kinds of music. And obviously, it's not really mainstream pop. So you have to kind of, set your sights in in a way that allows you to reach an audience that actually... Well, it's
0: actually almost, it's great that today's modern music industry isn't necessarily about mainstream radio. I mean, it's exactly that. KCRW and streaming and like NPR and, you know, Sirius XM and Spotify. It's like, you don't need to be just to have a pop hit anymore. Playing the festivals is almost more visibility these days if you can play tons of summer festivals than just being on pop radio.
1: Absolutely, yeah. But yeah, it's, you know, I've, I've had a long relationship with Israeli music. I mean, going back to when I lived in Israel, I was I spent a year in Israel when I was uh, 18 before college. I did a gap year uh, with Young Judea's, uh year course program, and and I just fell in love with all the music I heard on the radio. And I just, you know, I said I stayed in touch with it all those years afterwards. Uh, I used to listen to The Voice of Peace when I lived in Damona. I was a volunteer. Uh, for several months in demona as part of the program that i was on and uh, you know you could pick up the voice of peace and hear all the latest hits which was great it shrunk the world a little bit
0: and what was your connection to israel originally zionistic family israeli
1: no i think it's more i was i was i was very active in the zionist youth movement called young judea um, which is still around and uh i at the end of high school i went on their year program in israel and that was the first time i'd ever been in israel
0: yeah I mean, that seems to be the way many people fall in love. You go visit the country and then you, you're attached forever and you have to go back.
1: When I finished my year in Israel, I definitely was resolved to going back after I finished college. And I did do that. And I stayed there for two more years and then ultimately came back to get my uh, my graduate degree and wound up staying in America. But as I said, kept, kept a very close uh, relationship with Israel. I'm also very closely uh attached to a lot of high-tech entrepreneurs uh, in Israel. And I've gotten very involved in uh, early support for some interesting Israeli uh, tech companies.
0: I was going to actually mention that because I remember reading that when the Napster days and the early MySpace days, you were one of the first people when you, was it at Columbia Records, maybe with the Jonas Brothers that were into giving away music and like understanding that it's not really giving it away. That's just the modern music area. You got to, you know, use the music to sell other things, right?
1: Yeah. Well, we, we created, we created a widget that uh, hosted the early Jonas Brothers videos and back then kids used to take the widget and put it up on their MySpace page when MySpace was popular. And it was very, very successful. It was really the first way that the Jonas Brothers music got out to the world at large. And, uh, it created a lot of uh, friction with the people at the top of the Sony Music Group who didn't like the idea that we were uh, giving the music away on MySpace. Uh, but they
0: probably thought you were crazy. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, they we're, well, they thought right. we're not just
1: crazy. They thought, I, they thought I was, you know, a, a bad president. Um, yeah. But uh, history has proven that that was the right way to go. So I, I, I'm comfortable in my decision. Are you
0: involved in the music tech side in Israel at all? Or just tech in general? No, I, I, I got everything.
1: involved over the years with uh, Israeli startups that have some application in music, even though they're not solely about music. So like one of the companies that I was very involved with, and still am, um, is a company called Echo that was uh, started by an Israeli pop star named Yoni Bloch, And it's an interactive video company. And I met Yoni years ago and just thought that his uh, invention his you know, his his idea about how to create interactive video was really smart and so we uh brought him to america and uh the very first interactive video that he made was uh, with my artist andy grammar for a song called keep your head up and it won mtv awards for uh, most innovative video and uh, the next year was that the choose your own
0: adventure video where you can sort of it's gone or
1: or something like
0: that i remember
1: sorry was it on a rooftop or it was that's right yes it was in 2010 so it's 10 years old now and uh, we, with, we won MTV's most innovative video then. And the next year we won it again with a video that we did with our band, We the Kings, that was sort of like a mock video game. Um, yep. And you were playing it, you made choices and you really like, could like score points or, That's right. or whatever. It was, it was really great. And the company's still doing fantastic. Um, you know, obviously I think when I saw that Black Mirror episode that was interactive uh, last year. Yes. Saying,
0: Wait a second. This is the same technology that you own. It, it was that that show. I remember like your that video was before that show, and everybody. Was, oh yeah, it was years, years before. That show. Years before it. So the other thing I was going to ask you is: so do you have a scout in Israel for music, or do you just go there and it's you use your own ears still and you do your thing?
1: Yeah, I just go there. Like the way I the way I was able to sign Netta was um, when she won the. Kochav Habah, and was selected to represent Israel in the Eurovision, and they made the video for Toy. And the day that it was released, I just saw an, a news article in Haaretz that said that the video was released. So I was curious, of course, and I watched the video. and I said, oh, she's great. I want to sign her. So I actually was able to sign Netza before she appeared in Eurovision, which was very fortunate, um, you know, because she ended up winning Eurovision.
0: That's not fortunate. That's that's good years. That's understanding talent. You know, that,
1: that's the years. She is amazingly talented. She's an incredibly talented person. Um, I think the music she's about to come out with, um, some of it, which is a real departure from what we associate with her, is a beautiful ballad that she has that's coming soon, um, really shows her off as a great singer. Um, and I think she's, she's just a, a major all-around talent, and I think that she's going to have a wonderful
0: career. She's certainly a star. Has she been working with American pop writers or mainly
1: Israeli? She did. She worked with some Americans. She came over and worked with some Americans on the song um, Ricky Lake that's out right now. And then she worked uh, with J.R. Rotem, who's a producer in L.A., yeah. who actually is Israeli, but um, he's lived in America for, forever. Forever. And he um, produced this next song that we have coming out.
0: That's amazing. I mean, she's, uh, people are certainly excited about that. There hasn't been so many Eurovision winners that have been able to continue and cross over. And she seems like certainly one of them that's breaking that mold. Yeah, there really are
1: almost none. I mean, the, you know, the people who appeared in Eurovision who have gone on to fame, you can really be, you can count them on one hand. I'm sure, you know, Abba is the most it, obvious. It's Ab- Abba and Neto. Dion was in Eurovision. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, but they're very few.
0: Nice. All right. So the way we like to end this podcast is throw out five different things and you give me, it could be a sentence or two. It could be a word or two, which
1: just pops in your mind. Okay. Okay. So the first, Andy Grammer. He's the nicest person in the world. He has the biggest heart, most generous, really pure and wonderful guy you could ever meet. And Got incredibly talented. Agreed. The Jonas Brothers? Uh, Really great guys who deserve all the success that they've gotten. They very hard workers, really strong work ethic, very very talented, and uh, really always knew what they wanted and went out and got it. Got it. All right. The
0: what about Spotify?
1: Spotify is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it's wonderful to have all the music in the world at your fingertips, but it's also a curse because scarcity is also good. You know, sometimes when you have one. One record, you know, you play it over and over and over again. You fall in love with it and you learn every, every aspect of it. And sometimes with Spotify, you listen to things for 10 seconds and go to the next thing and you don't give things a chance. So it has its ups and its downs. Agreed. And major record labels? Major record labels can be a force for good or a force for bad. They can be a force for good because they provide funding and expertise in the making and marketing of records uh, by people who often need that help. And then sometimes they get too concerned with commercial considerations and forget about the art, but not always. Nice, and then the last one, the boycott movement, the Israel cultural boycott movement. You know, I think it's really uh, unfortunate. I think that it's wrongheaded um, and I certainly am not in favor of it, but I am very much in favor of, of peace and I'm in favor of a peace that, that's satisfactory to both sides. And I hope that we can get to a place where both sides feel like uh, they got what they needed and that they could live in peace with each other. Um, but I, you know, I do think that ultimately, we're gonna have to deal with the roots of the problem before we can get rid of the boycott movement. Thank you so
0: much, Steve. Um, for everybody else, make sure you subscribe and leave a review, and we will see you next time.
1: Thanks.